filled with things to say this evening, so it's great to be back here on Republic Broadcasting with Corbett Report Radio. Of course, I am your host and friend, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, coming to you tonight, as every night, all the way from the sunny climes of Western Japan. So once again, thank you to each and every one of you out there in the listening audience tonight, wherever you might be listening, for tuning in and trying to uh, to sort through the morass of information coming out of the mainstream media and filtering it through uh, a well a more realistic net to try to find out and parse in the tea leaves and see where our world is going and what's really happening and on that note uh, people who have signed up to be a subscriber to CorbettReport.com by donating uh, 100 Japanese yen per month will have just received just in the last few minutes in their inbox the latest edition of the Corbett Report subscriber newsletter so I hope you uh, all out there in the audience who are uh, subscribers do enjoy that. I have put in, again, a news roundup and uh, look back at 2011 and look forward to 2012 and a subscriber-exclusive video. So I hope you enjoy that uh, that little New Year's present for, for the subscribers out there. And once again, if you would like to help support me and make what I do possible, then uh, you can find out more information at corporatereport.com slash support, where you can find out ways to subscribe to The Corporate Report and also to buy my DVDs to help keep me going and to keep this media coming to you because it is brought to you by yourself. And there are many things going on in the world this evening, this evening of the 3rd of January 2012 back in the United States where a lot is going on and of course we are all keeping our eye on the Iowa caucuses where it looks like, yes, it looks like Santorum and Romney have championed over, uh, what's the third place uh, guy's name again? Um, uh, Raul, Saul, oh yeah, Ron Paul, yes, yeah, something like that. So um, well, there you go. We've um, we've uh, seen the the <laughs> whatever has transpired there in in Iowa is um, is transpiring as we speak, and we'll see the way that uh, the the media does their 180 once again and decides that Iowa now does have some meaning, although it didn't have meaning when Paul was leading in the polls, and it did have meaning four years ago when it was seen as a key indicator, but. Oh, we'll see them flip again and say that it has no meaning, or it has meaning, now that Ron Paul did not win, or so they're saying, after they counted the votes behind closed doors, and after a GOP insider by the exceedingly unlikely name of D.D. Benke came out the other day to say that the GOP insiders had been offering sweetheart deals to blocks of voters to get them to turn away from Paul and towards Romney and Santorum. So here you go, the first step along the road to four more years of more of the same, no matter what way it goes uh, from here, but uh, but can we any any of us say we're truly surprised by the fact that the system freaked out and uh, did whatever it could to try to derail an actual anti-war candidate? Imagine that. Well, tonight on the program, we're honored to be joined on the line by a guest who I've spoken to a few times on CorbettReport.com, and this is Denis Roncourt, and he has a blog at activistteacher.blogspot.com that I hope you'll check out. He has a lot of very interesting, very informative and informed articles, but also some very provocative and thought-provoking and, and very interesting takes on a lot of different issues. And uh, as I say, we've talked a couple of times before on CorbettReport.com, so people who are not familiar with Denis Rancourt can go there and just type Rancourt into the search engine, that's uh, R-A-N-C-O-U-R-T, and you can bring up our old interviews and uh, and listen to some of that. But tonight we're going to be talking to Denis directly about a very interesting and, again, thought-provoking article that he came out with uh, last month called A Theory of Chronic 
pain. And uh, trust me, no matter what you think that might be about, it's probably not what you think it's about. So on that note, we'll, uh, we'll just pause briefly here for a short break. But when we come back, we'll continue talking with Denis Roncourt of activistteacher.blogspot.com. Hey, welcome back to the broadcast, friends. James Corbett here of CorbettReport.com, and you are tuned into Corbett Report Radio for what promises to be a very interesting conversation, as it always is with tonight's guest, Denis Rancourt of Ottawa, Canada, and he is uh, joining us tonight from his blog, ActivistTeacher.blogspot.com. So I suggest that you go and check out that blog if you haven't yet done so to find out some of the very interesting and uh, and quite a wide variety of things that Denis Rancourt has written about in the past. Uh, quite an extensive uh, index there on the sidebar to give you an idea of the range of material that he covers. But, uh, Denis, it's great to have you back on the program tonight, so thank it's, you so much uh, for joining us tonight. It's a pleasure to be here, James. Uh, th- thanks you for having me again. Yeah, I love it. Well, good. Well, I, I love having you here. You're always a very thought-provoking individual, and uh, the, the conversations always uh, spin my mind off into a million different directions, so I'm sure that will be part of what we're doing tonight. But I guess since this is your first time on Corporate Report Radio, perhaps for the listeners out there, we can introduce yourself and uh, a little bit about your background. Sure. I mean, I, I was a full and tenured physics professor at the University of Ottawa for 20 20- several years, you know, and uh, I was fired in 2009 after a long conflict period with my employer, uh, basically fired for my dissidence. I was someone who was very outspoken. I was very critical of the management of the university, uh, critical of the executive. I ran a, a, another blog, which I still run, which is called U of O Watch, University of Ottawa Watch, and they didn't like that at all because I exposed a lot of the mismanagement, a lot of the corruption and put up documents. I, I was using access to information law to get various documents and uh, exposing how the institution was run in a, in a very corporate style, non-democratic, uh, pushing aside collegial governance and the rights of students and staff and so on. So I've been doing that for many, many years and eventually got me fired. Uh, but I'm tenured, so there's a big battle going on now. I'm, I'm in the middle of a binding arbitration dispute, and the tribunal hearings are ongoing, and they'll be ongoing all of this year, I think. And eventually, uh, if reason wins out, I should get my job back and a large compensation. So that's, in a <laughs> nutshell... I, I wouldn't situation. hold my breath for that. No, well, you know... It, 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 if, yeah, we'll see. I mean, the legal system is 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 uh, not a justice system, but we'll see. Uh, there are a lot of people who are of the opinion that there is no doubt that I should win, but they have a lot of tricks up their sleeves. Uh, for example, they're arguing vehemently that even if they, the firing was wrongful, I should still not be allowed to come back because um, our working relationship has deteriorated too much. And what they mean by that is that I've continued to blog on my U of O Watch blog. <laughs> and so um, they're making these legal arguments that, um, you know, even though in principle I, I would have a right to be there and I was not legitimately fired, uh, that they're using some case law that in some strange cases in the corporate world, some employees after they were fired went a little 
batty and made all kinds of threats and so on, and therefore the judge decided that it might be better if they didn't go back into the work environment. So they're using that kind of case law to argue that they shouldn't allow me back uh, into my job on campus. But So this is just a zoo of a story, you know, this whole thing with the university. Um, but despite that, I've continued to be very active on the intellectual front and in my activism. And in parallel to all of this madness with the university, they're actually suing me for defamation in regards to my U of O Watch blog. So there is a lawsuit which I am claiming is uh, champertus, where the university is funding a law professor to sue me for defamation over one of the blog posts where I criticize this law professor's uh, reporting for the university to uh, discredit a student report that was alleging uh, systemic racism at the university. So there's another mess of a story there, and they're suing me for a million dollars, and the university was forced recently to admit that they were actually paying uh, the, the lawsuit. They were paying for the lawsuit. Um, so in some states in the United States, that's illegal. You know, yeah, a, pub- a publicly funded institution cannot pay to pursue a private citizen that is critical of the institution. Um, and exactly the- right. And and for people who haven't looked into this, I really do hope they will look at uofowatch.com, is it? Uh, uofowatch.blogspot.com. Uh, yes, because there is yeah. just so much background to this, and we have talked about it a little bit on, in our previous interviews at corbettreport.com, so people might use that as a basis. We've gotten quite uh, deeply into the subject of pedagogy, but I understand tonight uh, we have kind of a different uh, subject that you wanted to tackle. Yeah, I thought we'd talk about medicine and public health because I've got some ideas and I've been researching this and I think that I've, I've got some radical views that are worth uh, putting out there because I think they are very close to the truth in terms of what is going on with establishment medicine. So I wanted to go in that direction. Well, we are um, no stranger to radical views here on this program. But <laughs> I know. First, I mean, to set the table for for this conversation, maybe we should talk a little bit broad, more broadly about the the sort of medical system that has evolved around us and and what uh, function it really plays in our health, so called. Yeah, I mean, um, I've I've written several essays about this. Um, I mean, one of the last essays that I wrote, I I summarized this nicely, I thought. I I entitled the essay, Is Establishment Medicine an Injurious Scam? And I argue based on, uh, you know, high-level peer-reviewed research, you know, published in the top journals, but that is minority research. In other words, it gets published, it gets highly recognized because these guys are very dedicated to what they're doing, but it doesn't get folded into the practice of medicine, and it doesn't become a mainstream criticism of medicine. So I've been looking at that research that is that is very very conclusive and very important, but that doesn't get applied. That everyone, no one's talking about it. You see that you'll never get a medical doctor going on on the radio and saying these things. So basically, here's what I've discovered. I'm I'm arguing and pointing out three things that are important to know about establishment medicine. The first is that science has discovered unambiguously that the single most important factor that affects the health of an individual, you know, barring the usual things like getting killed in the middle of a war and natural accidents and accidents at work, but I mean, in terms of effects 
on your metabolism. And the big killers in non-war environments, which are heart disease and cancer and so on, um, the single biggest determining factor of an individual's health is the dominance hierarchy in our society. In other words, the individual is somewhere within that dominance hierarchy of society, and depending, as you go down and down into the hierarchy, and as you are more and more oppressed and less and less advantaged within that hierarchy, your immune system is directly affected by the stress that is related to that. In other words, the effect is not um, uh, sort of a, a loop effect. It's not that because you're low in the hierarchy, you're more poor, therefore you're not eating as well, and you maybe have a more dangerous job and so on. That's not what this is about. This research, which is the effect of the dominance hierarchy on uh, individual health, has conclusively shown over decades and decades of research on animal populations, laboratory animals, field work, on mammals, on birds, on, on uh, primates, and so on, that the dominance hierarchy itself directly affects your immune system, your entire metabolism, and therefore organs and organ function, your susceptibility to cancer, and, and the extent to which your metabolism can fight against cancer and so on, your susceptibility to heart attack and heart problems, because that's well known that it's directly related to stress. And so the number one killer, if you like, by far, the, the number one causal factor in the individual's environment is the individual's place in whatever dominance hierarchy that individual is in, in, in society. And not only the, the um, objective place of the individual, but also the perceived place as perceived by the individual. So, for example, in a society like North America, if you're at the bottom of the scale living on the street in New York, let's say, you may be eating relatively well in the sense that you've got all the calories you need from the garbage and you're getting food from the restaurants that, you know, they, they give you things and so on. And in terms of actual nutrition and input, not just calories, but actual nutrition, you're actually doing well compared to someone in a, 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 a relatively poor country, but you're less healthy than someone who is not getting the nutrients that he or she needs as much as you are. And that's because your perception of your place in that hierarchy and that you're at the bottom and, and, and so your self-image and so on is such that the pressure from the dominance hierarchy has a greater effect on you as a homeless person in North America than it would as a low-caste person in the country that has the most poor in the world, which is India, you see. Um, it, it, even though objectively, in terms of purely physical input to your body and so on, and, and um, you, you should be doing better. So all of this to say that there's a broad area of research that's highly recognized, but that is done by a minority of medical researchers um, that has established this without any doubt. And it was reviewed, for example, extensively reviewed, in the scientific journal called Science in 2005, there was an important article about this, a review article um, that, that talked about all the various studies that all point in this direction.
So that absolutely, is absolutely fascinating. Yeah. And it is, as you say, there's a level in which we kind of expect this type of information, but in a different way. We think that it has to do with, the, oh, poor people eat le- less healthy foods or things like that. But it's actually not about that. And that's a point that I'd like to flesh out and tease out a little bit more on the other side of this break. We're going to take a short break. But if you want to get in on tonight's conversation, talking with Denis Rancourt about pain and the dominance hierarchy, you can call in at one 800 313 We'll be right back after these messages. Goes away Alright friends, we're back here on Corbett Report Radio here on the 3rd of January 2012 and we're talking to Denis Doncourt of activistteacher.blogspot.com and we're talking about the dominance hierarchy and a theory of chronic pain. Very, very interesting subject. So again, if you want to get in on tonight's conversation, it's 1-800-313-9443. But Denis, just before the break, I was mentioning that I think it's interesting that most people expect that uh, people in positions lower in the in the dominance hierarchy in whatever way, but be that monetary or otherwise, would experience some of the ill effects of being poor and downtrodden in society, like eating uh, poor, less uh, subs- nutritive foods and things like that. But, but this research really does indicate something fundamentally different, which is that, uh, that this is actually a function of, of being in that spot in the hierarchy. It has nothing to do with the, the physical conditions of it, which is really counterintuitive, and I just want to make sure that people understand that point, so I wanted to stress that, yeah. but perhaps you can talk a little bit about that point. Yeah, that's that's very important. That's central. You see, there are a lot of field studies that show a correlation between, uh, if you like, your financial status and your health, and then the researchers always go on to say, well, it must be because, uh, you know, when you don't have as much money, you're not eating the same quality food and all of this kind of stuff, but that's not true at all. That's an incorrect interpretation. Because you can go from country to country, and depending on where people are in the dominance hierarchy within their particular society, they can be, they can have better or not good food, and that is secondary compared to how they perceive themselves within their particular dominance hierarchy, you see? And so, there are these correlations, but the, the reason you have those health correlations is because of the direct biochemical effect on your metabolism and your immune system that is due directly from the stress related to your self-image about where you are in the dominance hierarchy of the society that you inhabit. That is a key result of these studies that are not only field studies, but it includes uh, laboratory studies and control studies where they actually measure your blood biochemistry of the functioning of your organs in response to these uh, stressors, you see. So there's, there's broad kinds of different studies, including, uh, you know, field studies of uh, populations of primates, birds, and so on. So the this science was reviewed, as I said earlier, in 2005. I'll give you the, the science article that it was reviewed in. The title is The Influence of Social Hierarchy on Primate Health, a review, and it's by a Robert M. Sapolsky, it's in Science, 2005, Volume 308, page 648. Unfortunately, science does not provide it for free. You can read the abstract, but if you want the whole article, you have to pay for it or go to a public library that has science. Fortunately, many public libraries do have science, but that's the way this 
system works, unfortunately. Absolutely. And as you were pointing out, out off-air, the science is particularly ironic, given that Science Magazine is, is run and, uh, and maintained by a society that supposedly has a, its mandate to bring scientific knowledge to the public. Yeah, the, the main uh, Society for the Advancement of Sciences in America is the society that hosts science and that promotes it and so on, and they haven't seen fit to make it freely available to any reader. I mean, I just find that incredible. But um, Incredible is- and on point, really, because it does speak once again to, to how the people perish for their lack of knowledge and their lack of ability to even uh, access that knowledge because of their spot in the uh, social hierarchy. But again, that's, uh, that relates back to the monetary issue rather than the actual the actual physical health effects that come from just perceiving yourself to be on the right. bottom of and, the and because of those physical effects that directly arise from the dominance hierarchy, you're not going to be able to go and read Science Magazine on your time off after the job because you're going to be metabolically weaker and less able to have initiative for other things and so on. And this brings me to the other essay that I wanted to tell you about, the one that you mentioned at the beginning, A Theory of Chronic Pain. I've been telling you one of the results in, in, in the first essay that I mentioned. So there's two essays that I, we're talking about today. Is establishment medicine an injurious scam? And then we'll move into a theory of chronic pain. In the injurious scam essay, there's this first idea about dominance hierarchy, but there's a second point that's really important. I'll, I'll just mention two more points from this first essay. The second point is that it's false to think that modern medicine is based on science. There are many researchers, high-level researchers, they're called, they're so-called meta-researchers, and they're in high demand, they're published again in the best journals, but they're in minority. And what they point out is that the medical, uh, research science is not reliable. It's mostly crap. They actually point out when they go in and look at these studies that 80% of the science that is done, that is used to justify the various medications and the various treatments that medical doctors end up using, 80% of it is completely unreliable. So um, it's, it's wrong to think that modern medicine is based on science. It's not. It's, it's based on practice. It's based on sort of the common sense and quotations of medical doctors that is often contrary to what a, a proper science would tell you. So that's another big lie. I call it the voodoo lie of the false scientific foundation of uh, professional medicine. And um, in this essay, I've... Is that music break time? That's uh, It's coming up in 20 <laughs> seconds here. So okay. uh, hold it right there. We will continue talking about this uh, this uh, incredibly important essay, and I hope that people will go and take a look at it. It's called The Theory of Chronic Pain. It's on activistteacher.blogspot.com. So let's just take a short break. We'll be right back after these messages. You're listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network. Because you can handle the truth.
Welcome back, friends. It's James Corp here from CorporateReport.com. And if you're just tuning in, tonight we're talking to Denis Rancourt, a professor from uh, Ontario in Canada, and he is found at ActivistTeacher.blogspot.com, also at UofOWatch.blogspot.com. And uh, tonight we're talking about a theory of chronic pain, and we're talking about very interesting topics that go to the heart of the, the medical establishment that has been uh, propped up around us as the authority on all things to do with our health, and uh, and that may, in fact, be a very big lie as we're going through tonight. So, once again, uh, another opportunity, if you want to get in on tonight's conversation, 1-800-313-9443. So, Denis, let's, uh, let's continue where we were going there, and just uh, okay. I understand there's another part of this that we want to dissect before we get into the, the article itself. Okay, so three points about medicine. First, the most important causal factor of individual health is the dominance hierarchy. Secondly, modern establishment medicine is not based on science. That's just a misconception, and the whole science research enterprise is driven by, uh, you know, um, people's careers and things like that, but it's not a basis for what how science, science practice. And thirdly, Medicine itself, establishment medicine itself, is the third leading cause of death in North America. So there's cancer, heart disease, and then it's medicine and all the various kinds of medical so-called errors and the way that medicine kills us. So that these are well-established uh, characteristics of establishment medicine that are written about by bona fide medical researchers in the leading journals, but it just never gets out, and the MDs that get interviewed that are t- the talking heads in the media will never mention these things. So that's my summary of this essay entitled, Is Establishment Medicine an Injurious Scam? Now we can move on to this theory of chronic pain, uh, which is the really novel thing uh, that I wanted to tell you about today. So the idea is like this. In in this essay, uh, the the subtitle is A Social and Evolutionary Theory of Human Disease and Chronic Pain. So basically what I present here is that given that the dominant influence or the dominant uh, causal factor for individual health is the dominance hierarchy, given that situation, you have to ask yourself, well, why, why is that? Why would individual vulnerability in terms of your individual health, uh, two dominance hierarchy have survived millions, billions of years of evolution. Is there an evolutionary advantage to a species of animals having this susceptibility of the individual to the dominance hierarchy of the society of the animal? Is there, um, um, you know, an advantage in terms of the species, of its uh, survival and so on? And so that's the question that I ask. And what I conclude in this essay is that there is a huge advantage, that there's a reason for this to have survived uh, the evolutionary process. And the way I explain it is as, is as follows. Um, in animals, if you have this uh, sort of positive feedback between dominance hierarchy and negative impact on individual health, then what will happen is that you'll have a gradient of health within the hierarchy that is exactly such that the people who are most oppressed by the hierarchy are also the most feeble or the less healthy, and so they're the most less likely to rebel and to defend themselves against the impacts of the hierarchy. So in this way, you have a uh, 
biochemical um, mechanism to strengthen the hierarchy. So there's a feedback that um, stabilizes and strengthens hierarchy within the society, and it's based on the individual health impact. You see, so that that's the central idea of this essay: is that um, this sensitivity of the individual's health to the dominance hierarchy plays two roles. One is to strengthen and stabilize the hierarchy itself because large masses of individuals are not easily going to accept as individuals being oppressed and having less interesting lives and having less agency in the society and all of these things. The individual thrusts of the individual are not going to want to accept that. So you need a counter. You need a biological mechanism that allows you to develop a strong hierarchical society because there's a huge um, species advantage to having hierarchy. If you think of the animal species on Earth that are the most successful, the, the most successful animal in terms of biomass and number of individuals and in terms of the degree to which it has transformed the biosphere on the planet itself, the most successful animal that has a nervous system, so I won't count amoebas and things like that, is the ant, ants. Well, ants are highly, live in very hierarchical societies. We know that. Um, the most successful mammal, by far, is humans. And humans, more than any other mammal, live in extremely hierarchical societies. I, I mean, we don't have to explain that or give examples, but we all know, you know, we you just say the word globalization, and we know what we're talking about. So, um, species clearly have an advantage to hierarchical structure, and therefore, and, and this, this dates back to, you know, the beginnings of evolution, uh, individual cells getting together to form colonies of cells. Well, they're going to have to give up, you know, there's, there's disadvantages for the individual cell to do that. They have to give up. Uh, it has to give up some of its autonomy, some, some of its ability to survive on its own, and so on, but there's a huge advantage to having developed that colony. So you can trace this this advantage all the way back uh, almost to that stage, bring it all the way up, you see. Um, so I, I, I'm, I've come to propose, and I believe as a working model, that um, that's the reason that we have that innate built-in susceptibility to the dominance hierarchy, to... to having a weakened mechanism. So there's a big advantage to having, you know, the dominance hierarchy wants hordes of not-so-healthy individuals that will not live as long and that will do all the grunt work. The, the dominance hierarchy has a huge advantage to having access to that. Um, slaves, basically. Um, so uh, the species uh, takes over and just grows like crazy when you've got access to this kind of a hierarchical structure. Now, of well, course... Uh, let me put it this way. I mean, I think the conclusion certainly follows from the premises, but uh, but it, it paints to me just such an incredibly fatalistic picture because then that, to me, states that we're pretty much trapped into this type of system by our very biology itself and that uh, this is this is something that wouldn't really be something we can really rail against. It's just part of human nature. Well, um, yeah, that's that's one reaction. That's a common reaction to this essay. 
And I, I don't think that the, the, that follows. Um, what I'm trying to describe is I'm trying to describe reality. I'm trying to say, well, look, I think this is happening. But that doesn't mean that we don't have individual will and that we're not individuals and that we can't use this knowledge to try and see, well, what can we do with this? I think that it makes us more aware of the world around us, the hierarchy in which we live, its effects on us. We become more conscious, more aware, and I think that that potentially gives us power to organize ourselves as individuals in order to um, fight back, if you like. I mean, I think what this model suggests is that if you find a way to recover your dignity but via your own personal rebellion and via... Uh, your your personal way of surviving the hierarchy or the negative impacts of it, if you like, that you'll both uh, recover that dignity, but at the same time, you'll be recovering uh, to a large measure the health that you can have as an individual. Because remember, the what we were saying earlier is that how you perceive yourself within that hierarchy is as important as your objective place within the hierarchy. And so if you can find a way as an individual to um, recover some of your power as an individual, some of your agency, to, and then your health will improve dramatically. Whereas if you simply accept your place and you have a negative self-image about your place, um, you, you will feel sickly and you will not have the energy to resist and get out of it. Um, so, and, and another thing I point out in this essay is that because of this mechanism stabilizes and gives positive feedback to greater and greater hierarchy, to a sharpening of the hierarchical pyramid, if you like, um, that means that you, the, the pyramid spontaneously grows in height and that is destabilizing because you're going to have more and more people who are more and more at the bottom and who are suffering more and more from that and eventually individuals will find a way to fight back. Because this positive feedback drives it so quickly towards fascism, in fact, um, you're, the indivi- some individuals are going to find a way to fight that. They're going to feel that they need to. Um, so that there will be these, there will be this um, uh, crash of the system, if you like. Call it a revolution, if you want. Um, or at least a mosaic of crashes. And so um, I think that this is a realistic model of how human societies work. Um, Hierarchies uh, strengthen themselves, sharpen themselves, grow uh, until there's some kind of a backlash from um, individuals who manage to get together and have an impact on it. It brings it down a bit. Um, It renormalizes things a bit, uh, you get civil rights for a while, you get these kinds of things as a result of these uh, revolution-like times and movements like we had in the 60s, for example, um, and then the hierarchy just picks itself up again and starts to go off into that into that mode of uh, sharpening the hierarchical pyramid and so on, and it's driven by this positive feedback that stabilizes it. I mean, I think if you didn't have this health gradient, um, individuals would much more easily uh, um, combat the negative impacts on the individual of the hierarchy itself. 
So it's a stabilizing force. Um, it certainly does follow that if you're in, if you're sick and in pain, you're going to be much less effective at fighting back against the system that's making you sick and in pain. So, so yeah. it certainly does have that effect, doesn't it? And and I, to me, this ties in so so neatly with all of the other things that we've talked about previously regarding pedagogy and and the social engineering of society and and things to get us to try to accept at every at every possible point our place in society and the the natural order of society and to get us to perceive ourselves as being in those subdominant spots because because again it doesn't even matter if we if we are uh, how we are, perceive ourselves and as long as we perceive ourselves as in the bottom part of that pyramid that that in its, in and of itself affects the health so that would be i mean all they have to do is to get us to realize our position in society or to 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 think about it and they've already in some some degree not won the fight but at least uh, certainly given us a, a great disadvantage Oh yeah, and I hear this all the time from activists, and I'm, I'm tired of hearing it. But they'll, activists will often complain that you know, activism burns you out. You're just so burnt out. It's just so hard to keep resisting. You know, well, I don't agree. I think if you are fighting from a position of having the self-image that you're oppressed by the by the hierarchy, then yeah, you're going to be sickly, and you're going to feel burnt out, and you're going to burn out. You won't have energy, and so on. But if you can find a way to fight back in a way that recovers your dignity and where you find your power as an individual and where you're motivated to fight your own oppression as an individual, to get out, get out of it instead of following these rules and these, you know, I should consume this way and I should this and I should that and I, I must and I'm, you know, and, and it's sort of a down thing with a negative self-image where you have your place in this hierarchy and it's not likely that you're going to be able to change things and so on versus a positive approach where you say, you know, I think I can kick some butt here. I think I can make a little space for myself. I think I can, um, uh, you know, get my boss to behave a little differently if I stand up to him and so on. As soon as you start going in that direction, you change the the equation. You change the way that this uh, feedback mechanism works. I think. I mean, a, a lot. All the activists I've known that were uh, very positive and full of energy and never got depressed or burnt out or anything, they were fighters in that sense. They took on whatever was oppressing them directly in their environment, and they made more space for themselves. Um, and then, and they found each other and they coalesced into groups that were doing this and they supported each other and so on, right? Um, so I think that this is not a, a doomsday kind of result. I think it's just telling us something about the reality of our societies that we can use. Um, I think that's, I that's a good way of putting it because because that's uh, that resonates deeply with a message that I I've been trying to put across for a long time, which is always that if we are concentrating on the doom and the gloom and the fact that we're fighting against this unstoppable, all-knowing, all-powerful beast, then we we fight ourselves into that corner. We create that reality, not in a touchy-feely, new-agey kind of way, but because that's exactly what happens when we we set up these systems within our own perception. And and exactly in that way, I guess it, it is a, really a question of perceiving ourselves not to be the, uh, the at the bottom rung of the ladder, but to be equal human beings who are just asserting ourselves and asserting our whatever it is that we're uh, attempting to do here that uh, that really will represent the type of step that we need to 
at least gain the uh, the the energy, the 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 health, the the, the uh, condition, the biological condition to to actually affect the change that we're attempting to do. So, yeah, I I, I would add to that that you know I, I think that the uh, hierarchy wants us to perceive our place um, as a place within the hierarchy. In other words, it wants us to see what is around us is a hierarchy that controls us. Whereas instead, if we choose to see the immediate forces that are acting on us, the individuals that are telling us what to do and pushing us around and that we interact with and our colleagues and so on, if we choose to see that predominantly, well, that is a place where we can act and where we have power because that's directly the place that the the system is connected to you, the individual, and that's where you're connected to it. So if you act at that level, you're actually doing the most you can do, and you've got power. Um, you're as powerful as you can be, as opposed to thinking in 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 terms of the you know the meta problem and the the the, the, the mega structure and and so on. I think exactly, I think that's, which is why they try to keep people's attention focused on the the presidential elections or the the prime minister. Uh-huh. The big, the big events that uh, that we have very little control over as individuals, but uh, but they love to shove in our face because it shows us time and again that we're the losers. But I, yeah. I think you're exactly right on that point. Well, again, let's take a short break, and when we come back, we'll finish up talking to Denis Rancourt of ActivistTeacher.blogspot.com. Wow, sounds like she might be uh, suffering from some of the chronic pain brought about by her position in the social hierarchy. Very interesting. Well, tonight we've been talking to Denis Rancourt of activistteacher.blogspot.com, and uh, just in the final few minutes here, Denis, is there any other points you'd like to make about our topic tonight? that song that we heard the beginning of just now is an absolutely beautiful song. It's just amazing, and it actually goes with today's theme because what she says in that song is, you know, I haven't got anything. I'm at the bottom of this dominance hierarchy. So in in terms of material um, wealth, I've got nothing. But you know, I've got something. I've got my eyes, my voice, my arms, my body. And she names all her body parts and stuff. My spleen. Yeah. (laughs) Especially I like that one. Yeah, so she's basically... I'm never appreciative enough of my spleen. (laughs) But it's a great song. She's basically saying, you know, even when you have nothing, you can make a fist and punch the bastard that is oppressing you. You know, you can open your mouth and yell at, you know, the, the, the boss. You can do all these things. And so you should rejoice that you still have that and you're completely in control of your body. Uh, I think I think it's a great um, note to finish on, <laughs> but I wanted to point out, if we have time, that within this model that I'm developing about the theory of chronic pain, there's another utility for this susceptibility to bad health that comes from uh, the oppression of the dominance hierarchy, and that's as follows. An individual who suddenly realizes that they've 
gone, they've been through their cycle of utility to the, uh, hierarchy and they don't feel like they have a place anymore, this mechanism will very quickly typically kill them. They'll get cancer and die or a heart attack. So this, and the system wants that because otherwise if you lose your bearings and you don't see the utility of your life anymore, you could go on a rampage. You could react in, in a way that is harmful to the hierarchy. And so the, the preserving mechanism of the hierarchy is to kill you. And so this, this would explain why so many people, you know, die soon after retirement or die after they lose a loved one because, you know, work, work is not meaning in their lives. That was how they hung on and they, they lose it. And so, it, it, it appears that it would be the same mechanism that also kills people that have, that develop the consciousness that this just doesn't work for them anymore. Hmm. Um, and you want to do that because otherwise there'd be a lot more of these, uh, you know, uh, violent rampages and so on that, 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 that some people, um, break out into when they have those, um, moments where they realize this, you know. Exactly right, and that's that is a good point to make because it does seem to back up everything we've been talking about tonight, and it's it's a point that a lot of people can relate to from their own personal experiences, knowing someone who's uh, just given up on life after retiring or or losing a loved one and and dying shortly thereafter. It it does really tie into what we've been talking about. But on that fascinating note, I think we'll have to leave tonight's conversation there. So just quickly, uh, Denise, perhaps you can direct the dear listeners to your websites and other media entities before we go. Yes, well, the, the one where most of these essays are is Activist Teacher, all one word, activistteacher.blogspot.com. The most complete website about my various uh, legal battles and so on over many years, extremely well documented, is academicfreedom.ca. Academicfreedom, one word, .ca. That is just a very well documented website about all of these uh, battles that I've been involved with. Okay. Okay. We're going to have to leave it there. Uh, Denis Rancourt, once again, thank you for coming on. Very interesting conversation, as always. So I look forward to more conversations in the future. And thank you to all of you out there for listening tonight. And I'm looking forward to talking to you again tomorrow night. Thanks, James. It was uh, great fun. Thank you. <laughs>